Welcome to AdultBibleStories.com, our vicarious God and his vicarious people. My name is Jeff and I have a story to tell. We're doing a hop, skip, and jump throughout the Bible. So this is the first time you've ever read through the Bible. We hope to have a hunger and thirst for the Word of God so you can just dive right in. But it can be intimidating the first time you try. So we're, that's why we're doing a hop, skip, and jump. We're not going for every word, every scripture, but we're just kind of jumping through wherever the Holy Spirit leads. And this time we're in 2 Corinthians and we're going to start in chapter 5. So this chapter 5 verse 2 says, Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed of our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, uh, we will not be found naked, for we are in the tent, we groan. Now the scripture talks about being naked. Even in Revelation, Jesus talks about, you know, you think you, see, you have need of nothing, that you have everything that you, you know, you don't need me, that, but you don't know how naked it, and, and poor that you really are. So a nakedness is not something you, you, you see, a spiritual nakedness, a nakedness, you know, that God talks about. It's something you see, but it's something that's, you know, that's inside you that people can see. It talks about uh, us groaning. I mean, don't you groan when you do something that, you know, that you fell short of, the glory of God, something you wish you wouldn't keep on doing, and you hope nobody sees, sees that nakedness of you, sees that uh, fallacy in you, sees that shortcoming in you. We want to be clothed. You know, how many times do we get upset or tired of repeating the same thing over and over? Why can't I get a hold of this? Why can't I handle this? Why do I got to keep doing this? The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't do, I end up doing. And that shows our nakedness. It shows up why we groan in spirit. Why do we keep falling? Because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's always against us, always trying us, always testing us, always you know, trying to trip us up, giving us a stumbling block and so forth. And so we groan when we, when we want to live like Christ. We want to be like Christ. We want to represent Christ you know, in, the, in the greatest way. We can groan when we fall short of that. And so... So we long to be clothed in our, in our heavenly dwelling so we no longer, you know, come short of the glory of God in those areas. So let's hop, skip, and jump. We're staying in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, and we're going to verse 7. This is where Scripture says we live by faith and not by sight. We live by faith and not by sight. We live by what we, you know, don't see and, and, and uh, rather than what, what we see. You know, talking about live by faith and not by sight is we live by faith and not by emotions. We live by faith and not lean to our own understanding. We live by faith and not by touch. You know, we live by faith. It's, we don't live by our senses, our five senses. We don't live by what we, what we see, what we hear, what we feel, what we touch, what we taste. We don't live by our, our own understanding. You know, it says in the Old Testament that, you know, and it's something that Jesus read and lived by that, uh, that he would not judge by the sight of his eyes or the hearing of his ears, but he would make right judgments. It means everything you see, you may not see right. You may not see, you know, perfectly. There's some stuff in the... There are things that you don't see or what you hear. Well, you know what you hear, but you don't know what you haven't heard. And so we can't just judge by our five senses or we can't judge by the knowledge that we have perfectly. Only God can judge that way. So we need to live by faith. We need to give an ear towards the Lord. Lean not to our understanding, but uh, acknowledge him in our ways and he'll direct our paths. So let's hop, skip, and jump to verse 10. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So you want to know where that is? It's right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now this is, uh, you know, qualifying. There's a qualifying statement in this. It's qualifying those who receive Jesus in their heart. Those who have called upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It says in Romans uh, 10, 13, I think it is. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. You know, reading that this morning, 
I before that I was thinking about you know good and evil, and so I'm glad this says good or bad because evil is like is a you know one step beyond bad. You know we as Christians who love God can do bad things, meaning out of our ignorance or out of our zeal or out of something. You know when you do evil, it's something that you're bent on. It's something that you want to do. It's something that you you know that you've made place in your heart. A bad something you can do something bad. You know by lack of you know lack of understanding and so forth but neither neither less whether it be good and bad we're going to be judged by those things and even if it's out of ignorance you know why are we ignorant you know god gives us light and we have a choice either you know to keep that light or to turn off that light to keep that light or put that light under a bed or put that light under a bushel as jesus said and and not let that light be you know be seen and when there's no light what is left darkness and so many times we can get ourselves caught up in ignorance, not because we weren't given knowledge. And ignorance means to ignore the truth. It's because we hid the truth because we weren't ready, you know, to handle it. We didn't want to accept it. So we can end up doing some bad things, even as Christians. Let's hop, skip, and jump down. We're staying in chapter 5 to verse 11. It goes, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We tried we try to persuade men. So you want to know if you fear the Lord? Fear the Lord doesn't mean to be afraid of him. I say fear the Lord, but don't be afraid of him. We shouldn't we shouldn't be afraid of God. You know, Adam and Eve were afraid of God when they found themselves naked and they hid themselves. We ought not to hide ourselves. You know, Cain was afraid of being, you know, killed by God. And he says, you know, what I've done, now people are going to kill me. And God put a mark on his head so, so people wouldn't kill him. But many times we can run from God because we're afraid of him. But we're not supposed to be afraid of him. We're supposed to fear him. And fear him means to have a, a great respect and honor and, and put him first in knowing that his way is always way, that his truth is always the truth. We don't have my truth. You know, we don't have our own truth. It's either truth of God or it's not true at all. And so since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. So if we really fear the Lord, if we really respect and honor Him, if we really believe that God loves all men and all people and their salvation made acceptable to whosoever believeth, then we're going to try to persuade men. We're going to try to you know, convince men that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But if we never try to disciple anybody, we never try to witness anybody, we never tell people about what God has done in our life, then we do we really fear the Lord? Do we really honor Him, respect Him, revere Him? him right here it says we know that it is to fear the lord we know what it is what it is what it is to fear the lord what is to fear the lord to try to persuade men now there are other other definitions of fear the lord too but you know they they don't contradict the goal because one of the things that have the fear of the lord means to depart from evil it talks about the old testament but here's a new testament definition of the fear of the lord is to try to persuade men you know, uh, of what of what God has. And, and and this is right after the judgment seat of Christ. So we try to persuade men that, you know, if you're, you're going to be judged one day for what you do in your body. And so let's hop, skip, and jump to verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. And just another phrase. That's what I jump to, phrases. You know, there's so many teachings, so many, you know, uh, sermons we can get out of this. I mean, you know, God just pours out His Spirit, and I just you know, meditate and think on these things. For Christ's love compels us. You know, one of the things judgment seat of Christ is going to happen is about the motives of our heart, why we did a thing, not necessarily what we did, but why we did it. And there's only one good reason why we do it, and we should be compelled by the love of God. It says Christ's love compels us. Why did you do something? Why did you do something for so and so? 
you know, uh, did you do it out of love or did you do it out of self-righteousness? Did you do it out of all, oh, there's all kinds of motives or why you did it, but we should always do it out of love, love, first love for God and love for people. Cause many times, you know, I won't do something for love of people because people, you know, are, we're flaky. I mean, we're flaky. Our emotions go up and down. One day, you know, we love you, and the next day, we're not quite so sure. But the love of God can, you know, can be just be constant. So I'll, so I'll love people with the love of God, which means I'll, I'll stay constant no matter how they react or don't react or, or so forth. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Christ's love compels us. So whatever we do for one another, it needs to be out of love, not out of love, you know, not out of trying to get back something. You no, know, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours type of thing. But I'm going to do something for you because my love for God, you know, compels me to act on your behalf. My love, the love of my love for God compels me to help you in any given situation. Wherever compassion moves me, Jesus was always moved with compassion towards people. He wasn't moved with the self righteousness. He wasn't moved by, you know, by the uh, opinion of men. Many times we do something because we're afraid of what people will say if we don't do it. But that's not the same thing as being compelled by Christ's love. So, and it goes on, it says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, in verse 15, And he died for all, and those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for themselves and raised again. So once we become born again, once we put our faith in Christ Jesus, we're not supposed to be living for ourselves. And that's what got ourselves in problem, got ourselves in, in a trouble before, is trying to live for ourselves. In fact, every time we get ourselves in trouble is because often we're trying to live for ourselves, live for our own benefit, trying to, you know, to cover our own, you know, backsides or whatever, rather than dying, you know, to our own selves or denying ourselves is more adequate uh, New Testament word. Because with Christ, we died with Christ and we were resurrected with Christ. But if we also consider ourselves dead to sin, that we're supposed to no longer live for ourselves, but live for God. That means if we're going to live for God in Christ Jesus and not for ourselves, that means any plan we come up with, we should always be going to God and getting his plan. In fact, we shouldn't, you know, even doing that sometimes. We, sometimes we create our own plan and go to God and try to get him to write off on it, you know, to approve of it. You know, and early on in our Christian life, you know, God would do that. You know, Jesus told Peter, says, you know, where, when you're young, you went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, you're going to be taken off, you know, where you don't want to go. He's talking about Peter's death, but that's also a thing for all of us. You know, when, we're, when you're a baby, you know, you, when you're learning how to walk, your parents kind of, you know, behind you and they kind of guide you and direct you so you don't get into trouble, but you kind of, you know, go wherever you want to go. But when you get older, you, you can't do that. When you get older, you got to be led, you, you know, by the Holy Spirit. And so, and so we should not live for ourselves. And many times we're only teaching about conversion, only teaching about what's the minimal you have to do or believe to get into heaven. And that's not... That's not teaching what the Bible teaches. We're supposed to be disciple and not bring conversion. We're supposed to be preaching about entering the kingdom of God and not and not just heaven. We are going to heaven someday. That is a you know physical place. But Jesus said, "Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand." We're supposed to be preaching the kingdom of God because that's the ultimate destination. You know, not heaven, but the kingdom of God is is you know where we're supposed to go. So we should no longer live for ourselves, but live for Him who was raised again. So it's going to verse 16. It says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. I think King James Version says, uh, we know no one after the flesh. You know, we shouldn't know 
each other after the weakness. We shouldn't know somebody, oh, that's drunk Bob or that's, you know, whatever Sally and we know whatever term, you know, word we want to use, whatever adjective we want to describe somebody or that's, we should know somebody after the spirit. We should know them after being a new creation in Christ Jesus and not after the flesh, not after the weakness. You know, and sometimes we may have to blind an eye, you know, so we don't, if their weakness is, is, is so large, but we need to know that they're a new creation in Christ Jesus and, and, you know, old things have passed away. And sometimes it takes away, takes a while for those old things to completely disappear and for us to get free of our past because our soul needs to be renewed, our mind needs to be renewed. But let's go on. Uh, it says, it goes to verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The oldest has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who has reconciled us through Christ Jesus. So the old has passed on, but the new has come. So we need to know each other after the new person we are, being the born again. Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. And so we need to know one another after our brand new uh, born again spirit and not so much of the soul that's being renewed on a daily basis or should be renewed on a daily basis. So let's hop, skip, and jump. Uh, this is verse 19 towards the end of it. Just another one of the phrases. It says, not counting men's sin against them. So God is not counting our sin against us. God is not counting your sin against you. God is not counting uh, my sin against me. You know, the scripture says that we are in Christ Jesus. We're no longer under the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. Every tilde, every every dot, he crossed all his T's, dot of his, all his I's. He got all the P's and all the Q's in order. Got his all his ducks in a row. Jesus covered it all. So we're no longer under the law and the means the law no longer governs us. The law no longer calls us good or bad. But we're found in Christ Jesus and God no longer judges us, judges us according to the law, but he judges us according to us being in Christ Jesus. He no longer holds those sins against us. He's not looking at the law and looking at us and saying, these you've done and these are wrong. Now, he may do that in, you know, in, in correcting us and showing that we're coming short of the glory of God, but he doesn't judge us according to eternal you know, life or eternal death based on the law. He's not counting our sins against us. He's putting those, putting those things aside. He's giving us time to repent. Every man is given, you know, wants to die, then face judgment. So, those, so of us, us in Christ Jesus will never face that type of judgment, judgment of, of, of life and death, meaning hell and you know, eternity or, and, or heaven and eternity. But he's not counting our sins against you. Even the sin that you committed last night or the sin you committed and this morning, just repent of it. He's not counting those against us. He's not going to put you against the wall and say you must pay for it because Jesus paid for it. But we can easily you know, go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness in Christ Jesus and ask for help. And God is gladly and quite there to, you know, to give it to us, uh, to give us that help. You know, God is a just God. And to be a just God, just like you to be a just judge, you can't have favoritism. You can't hold the law against one person and let somebody else, you know, get by by something. But because Jesus Christ took that place, Jesus, I know God is not being unjust by anyone who comes in the name of Jesus to let them off the hook, so to speak, because Jesus paid for the paid for that but we must come in christ jesus in order to do to do so 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 because we live in a society where well we just need to ask god to forgive us well it would not be a just judge 
you know, if somebody came up and, and they murdered somebody and they just asked the judge, well, you know, please forgive me for doing that. And the judge says, okay, you're forgiven, go off. No, there is a penalty. There has to, somebody has to pay. And Jesus was that person that paid. Anybody who believes in him paid their penalty. Then, you know, those sins are not held against us. For God to be just, there had to be a penalty. Somebody had to pay. And thank God it wasn't us, it was Jesus. And because of that, we can believe in him and be saved. Let's hop and skip to verse 21 in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made him who, who had no sin to be sin for us and him. We might become the righteous of God. So ever want to know where it says that Jesus never sinned? Because there's a big debate, did Jesus sin you know, or not? It's right here. Jesus had no sin. He never committed a sin. Rather, uh, a sin of uh, commission or a sin of omission. He was perfect in his walk and everything, in everything that he did. He was perfect in all his words. He never he never crossed ways or crossed wise with God in his words or his actions or his deeds or even the motives of his heart. He was perfect in every single aspect. He was a perfect sacrificial lamb. If he wasn't, then he would, could not have been the sacrificial lamb. He would not have been an offering that God could accept or a sacrifice that God could accept it. But, God, but Jesus was perfect. But we are not perfect. We committed sin. You know, we, we, you know, either out of our ignorance, but we've also committed sin knowing full well that we're going to commit sin. I used to work at a Christian boarding school. And sometimes we had to write kids up for doing certain things. And, and of course, you know, they had points and it, and it cost them something. You know, either extra duty in the kitchen or the bathroom or something. But the thing is, some of these kids would weigh it out. They'd weigh it out if, if you know the consequences. If I do this, I'm going to get this, and if and if it's worth the consequence, then they go ahead and do it. Well, we all do that at some point, especially when it comes to eating. You know, we know that we you know if we have one more you know one more plate of spaghetti or, or have one more piece of pie, there's going to be a consequence. But we let but we weigh that out and we still go through with it, knowing that there's going to be a negative consequence, and we should not do that. But we have. So God made him who had no sin, which is Jesus, to be sin. Jesus became our sin. Our sin was taken off our, off our bodies, off our souls, off our spirits, and put on the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteous of God. So the righteous of God was taken off Jesus and put upon us. The righteous of God is not something we can, we can, uh, we can, I know, um, earn. It's not something we can by it's and it's something that's a free gift that was given to us through what jesus did god could not give us give it to us by simply forgiving us god can only give it to us because of what jesus did by jesus giving up his righteousness so that he could be made sin so we become the righteous of god in christ jesus you are not righteousness you are not righteous in your own ways even though you may have done some righteous things even your you know the the you're not the righteous of God because many times our even our own righteousness is like filthy rags meaning we had motives that were not perfect we're not perfect before God we may have done the right thing but but, but the wrong way we've done the right thing in the right way but we did it with the wrong intention the wrong motive but when we become the righteous of God we are the righteous of God not based on what we do or don't do but based on what God did and, and is doing so we can receive the righteous of God even after sin and say God forgive me I'm the righteous of God in Christ Jesus or you're being tempted to do the wrong thing being tempted you know to sin we can say nah Jesus became that sin so I don't have to become that sin I become I am the righteous of God and many times you know Satan won't leave you alone it says you know you know uh, you give yourself to the Lord, resist the devil, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Well, many people just try to resist the devil, and if you're trying to do that in your own strength, your own ability, it's just a matter of time before you go down. 
you know, because Satan is wiser than us in ourselves. Satan is stronger than us. Satan does have more light than us in our in ourselves. He has a lesser light, but nevertheless, but with God, we, you know, Satan is already defeated in Christ Jesus. You know, Satan doesn't have a chance, but we must submit ourselves to God, submit ourselves to the righteous of God, in, you know, in Christ Jesus, and, and, and resist the devil in that righteousness, put on the, you know, uh, put on the breastplate of righteousness, and, and Satan will, will leave, he will depart. So let's hop, skip, and jump to verse, or chapter 6, verse 1, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Receive God's grace in vain. You know, the people of the kingdom of God are people of grace. We're not people of law. We do have laws, and the law is used in the right way to show people's need for Christ Jesus, to show people where they're hurting one another, because the law is only put in place to show where love is not being honored, where love is not first and first place. But we can receive God's grace in vain. It means God gives us time to repent. God gives us, you know, forgiveness and so forth but we cannot but we can take a place where we don't receive that grace you know many people say grace is the unmerited favor of god which which it is true that is that is so but it's not the first and, and greatest definition the first and greatest definition of grace is the power to overcome because of what jesus did we have the power to overcome we have the power to resist the devil we have the power to resist the flesh we have the power to overcome whatever comes our way but if we don't use that, we don't receive, you know, God's grace, you know, and, and apply it to that situation, we receive God's grace in vain. It's like uh, me giving you money and you, you receive my money, but then you, or say gift card, that's more accurate today. Gift cards are a big craze. And re one reason it's a big craze is because many people receive gift cards in vain. I give you a gift card, you put it on a shelf and never use it because it's not quite seen as money. When it is, but it's only but it, but it going to keep on ah, talking in tongues. But it's all going to be used in, in you know in one store or so forth. So many t people receive gift cards in vain, just like they receive God's grace in vain because they don't use it. They just shelf it or forget about it. They put it in their wallets. They put it in their purses and forget about it. I know several people that have gift cards from years ago because oh I need to use that. Oh I need to use that, but they forget about it. So they receive that gift in vain. So now let's hop, skip, and jump. We're staying in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. We're going to another phrase right before verse 9 begins. And it's, uh, uh, so this is verse 8. It says, genuine yet regarded as imposters. So Paul's talking about that he is genuine, but many times he's regarded as imposters. No, imposters. Now, if you're a Christian who's going to follow Jesus Christ, there are going to be some people that are just never going to believe that you changed your life, no matter how evident it is, no matter how much you love God, no how much you change, they're going to say that you're an imposter, that you just chose a different way to get what you want to get with your own self-righteousness, your own self-motivation. In fact, if you look, you know, if you go searching on the internet, you're going to find, no matter what Christian leader is, no matter what, you know, what pastor or, you know, evangelist, wherever, denomination they came from whichever group they came from whether baptist methodist you know independent you know charismatic you're going to find their name somewhere popped up on a list of being an imposter of being a fake of being a phony and what's really crazy about it is you're not going to find their names on different religious pages you know like other religions of the world you're only going to find them on other christian pages christians call on other christians imposters and there certainly are imposters and paul speaks of it and paul even addresses some names with it but but he's saying that even the genuine are going to be considered imposters by 
fake. Satan is accused of their brethren. He's going to use other brethren to call you an imposter because you don't live exactly like, you know, like him. So we need to be careful not calling people imposters. There are imposters. You know, there are people faking Christianity for, you know, whatever reason. You know, we talked about, I think, in 2 Corinthians, also, you know, some people do it, you know, do it for the money. And nowadays it's, you know, you can sell a book and make millions. You know, a Christian book and make millions, and you're doing it for greed or doing it for gain, and not actually for the glory of God, and not actually to you know help change people's lives. But if we're going to walk with Christ, we may be genuine, but we're also going to be regarded as imposters by some, and there's nothing we can do about it. Jesus said we will have trials and tribulations of this world. That if everybody you know if everybody thinks well of you, then then you're doing something wrong. There should be always be some people thinking not thinking well of you because you're living for Christ and not for people. So let's hop, skip, and jump to verse 12. It says, We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. Now, can you imagine that coming from the pulpit? You know, your pastor saying that to you. He says, Guys, I'm loving you with everything that I have, but I'm not feeling your love back. <laughs> you know, I, I, just, I just don't feel it. I don't, I don't see it. You know, so, so we need to have, you know, our affection needs to be more than our emotion. Our affection needs to be you know, it uh, needs to be sub something of sub of substance, of some, you know, some substantial. It needs to be more than words. It needs to be more than, you know, I love you with the love of the Lord. That used to be saying nowadays, I guess not said so much, but, you know, a lot of time, but now it just said, I love you. And there is no substance to it. There is no affection to it. It's just a bunch of empty words. And so we are not withholding our affection from you. We need not to hold our affection for one another. You know, I'm, I'm not given to a words of affirmation. Uh, but I've had to learn, and there's and, and, and what's crazy is there's a lot of times where where I see something, somebody's in my, and I get words of affirmation for them, and I'm not trying to be all spiritual, but uh, I just see something I haven't seen before. I mean, see somebody's nails, and you know, and I go, hmm, those are pretty. Well, how come I didn't speak that out? How come I didn't tell that person? That would have been words of affirmation. That would have been words of you know showing them affection. You know, God was trying to help me, you know, to connect, help me to have a greater fellowship and relationship. And, you know, I can miss it if I don't speak those words. Maybe that happens to you, too, that you just see something and you want to say it, but just something in your flesh. You don't want to say it because you're going, well, that's kind of weird or that's embarrassing or you're just not given to you know, public affection. Many people have problems with public affection. You know, and so forth. And I'm not talking about kissy, kissy, hug, hug. I'm just talking about words of affirmation, which is an affection. You know, men may see affection differently from women, but the biblical, you know, understanding of affection is just simply expression of love. So let's hop, skip, and jump to uh, verse 4. It says, Do not be yoked uh, together with unbelievers. So you wonder where that is in Scripture. It's right there, and it goes, and it goes even further, talking about what righteousness and wickedness have in common and what fellowship can light and darkness have. Have you ever seen light and dark shake hands? Have you ever seen light and dark in the same place? No, you only see different levels of light, you know, uh, but, you, but you don't see light and dark in the same place. In fact, you can't turn off dark. You can only turn on light and darkness disappears. So do not be un, you know, unequally yoked to use another scripture, but it's talking about marriage there. But... But we're not supposed to be yoked together with anybody. Now, what is a yoke? Yoke is more than an egg. A yoke is talking about two oxen or two cows or whatever, and they're you know, and they have a, a thing around their necks, and so they can pull a plow. And if one oxen or one cow is stronger than the other one, then they're going to kind of go in circles, right? One's going to pull more than the other, and they're not going to have a straight line. 
And that's how when we try to live both in the world and, and in the kingdom of God, we're trying to yoke up with the world and do things the way the world does in the kingdom of God. And that just doesn't work. We need not to be yoked up with one another. We need to be connected. Some people take it as far as we shouldn't be, you know, in, in uh, we shouldn't uh, start a business with somebody who's not, who doesn't know Christ. And, and I agree with that. We shouldn't be going into business with somebody in Christ, even though they, you know, it doesn't mean we can't take some of their, I guess, advice. But even then, we need to be careful. We shouldn't be yoking up with the world. That doesn't mean to be separated from the world to the point we have no influence on them. But it means that we're yoked up now with the Holy Spirit. Jesus went to the Father and says, if I go to the Father, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. We need to be yoked up with the, with the, with the Holy Spirit. We need to be yoked up with maturing Christians. So, so I'm not saying that we need to choose necessarily choose Christians over the world because there's many Christians who are not maturing, who are not growing up, and they're just as worldly as 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 you know as anybody. But we need not yoke up with somebody who doesn't even claim Christ as, as Lord and Savior. We need to make sure that we yoke up with with like believers so that we can you know uh, influence this world and so we can move forward and plow you know with the Word of God and, and grow the kingdom of God you know like we're supposed to, like we want to. And it goes on to verse 17, it says, Therefore, come out from, from out them and be, and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. You know, many of you may say, well, that's Old Testament. Yeah, it's Old Testament, but why is Paul, you know, saying it again in the New Testament? I mean, the Old Testament is much larger than the New Testament, so Paul could be quoting all kinds of things out of the Old Testament. So why did he quote this if it had nothing to do with us under the New Covenant, under the New Testament? Because God does not want us yoked to the world. He wants us yoked with Him, yoked with, you know, with believers, yoked with those who love God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and, and love our neighbor as self, yoked to those who love one another more than their own lives. Because Jesus says, love each other as I have loved you. And how Jesus loved us by laying down his life for us. And we ought to lay, there's no greater love than a brother who lays down his life. So there is, so we need to be careful on who we connect with, who we, who we yoke with, with who we share deep, intimate thoughts with in our, in our day-to-day life with. We shouldn't be yoked up, you know, in, with people, with unbelievers. Because, uh, so let's, let's, let's go on. Chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, another phrase. Let's read the first, let's just read the first, first, first. Since we have, <clears throat> excuse me, since we have these promises, dear friends, let's purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So first of all, he's telling us to purify ourselves. Now, of course, we can't purify ourselves in the flesh. We only can purify ourselves by using the word of God, by using the, the gifts that God has given us, the tools that God has given us, which is the word of God. From everything that contaminates body and spirit. There's some people talking about the flesh doesn't matter whatsoever. God only cares about motives and spirit. But he's talking about contaminate, you know, uh, about us purify ourselves in body. So there's things physically we're doing that's harming our, our, our spirit, harming our relationship with God, harming our relationship with one another. We need to purify those bodies, whether it be drugs or alcohol or, or pornography or whatever. We need to put those things off or bitterness or cussing. We, you know, Whatever is contaminate our body, we need to cast that things off. We need to purify ourselves. And it says, His body and spirit perfected holiness out of reverence for God. Perfected holiness. You want to, you know, want to, have to we cannot perfect righteousness. That righteousness is a free gift. You're not more or more or less righteous as you're either righteous of God or you're not. No, but we can perfect holiness. Our holiness is is our walking and you know walking with God. 
And that is made perfect out of the reverence of God. And the more we know God, the more our life changes and transforms. And the more, and the less we walk like the world, and the more we walk like God, and, and the more holiness that we walk in. And it goes on to verse 2. It says, make room for us in your hearts. Make room for us in your hearts. Another phrase I want to bring out here. You know, our hearts are full. You know, Jesus said, don't let our hearts be full of worry. Don't worry about this or that. Don't worry about the what's going on in the world because the trials and tribulations, but be good cheer for I've overcome the world. But our heart is full no matter where we go at what time, but full of what? You know, even the new heart that God has given us, you know, he doesn't, you know, we can still fill, fill up that heart with, with fear and trembling and fill up our heart with all the cares of this world and the, and the deceitfulness of riches and so forth. But make room for us in our hearts. You know, you got to make room for Christ in your heart. You're going to make room for your pastor in your heart. You're going to make room for your family. You know, recently God has said, make room for your, I know, in your, in your heart for uh, your niece, because my niece and, and my nephew have been coming over this summer. So I've had to make room in their heart, in, in my heart for them, which means I had to put something else out of my heart, whether good or bad or indifferent, but I had to make room by letting something else go so I can make room for them. And Paul is saying, make room for us in your hearts. There are many, you know, many pastors who feel disconnected from, you know, church. And sometimes it's the pastor, but, but also many times it's the congregation who's not made room for the pastor. They just, you know, they don't love the pastor. They like the pastor. They enjoy the pastor, but they haven't really made room. Because when you make room for somebody in your heart, you have a love. You have an affection. You want to do something for them. Many times, you know, people make room for somebody in their in their minds, which means they give them a fleeting thought here and there, but they haven't made room for their heart because your heart is where you're moved with compassion and move with affection. So let's hop, skip, and jump. We're staying in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, and we're going down to the end of verse 5, another phrase talking about conflicts on the outside and fears within. Paul's talking about what he's dealing with every day. And don't we have that? Don't we do that? Each one of us have conflicts on the outside. Things are just not going our way. Then, you know, things that we didn't expect, you know, and, and relationship struggles here and there and, and work struggles. And then we have fears within. We have these things that coming up, you know, fears of saying that you're not good enough. You're not qualified enough that you're that's, you know, that uh, you're not going to make it, that God is for you, but maybe not all the way for you, that God is going to let you fall or God's going to let you struggle. We have all these, you know, stinking fears in us. We have the conflicts on the outside and we have fears of the inside. And we need to deal with both by the word of God. Because, you know, so we can cast those fears. We shouldn't have fear. The scripture says over and over, fear not, but be of good courage. We need to cast out the fear. And perfect love is the only thing that casts out fear. So we're never going to get rid of the conflicts on the outside, but we can definitely get rid of the fears inside by walking with Christ Jesus and, and, and knowing his love that cast out fear. So let's hop, skip, and jump to verse 10. It's talking about godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. There's a godly sorrow, and it goes on talking about a worldly sorrow. We want a godly sorrow. How do you know if you have a godly sorrow that leads to repentance? Have you ever had a sin where you just keep on doing the same thing? You ask God for forgiveness, you repent, so you renounce it, you reject it, but next thing you know, you're doing it right over again. That's because you're probably in a world sorrow, worldly sorrow, not a godly sorrow, because a godly sorrow will cause you to see the harm that you're you know, doing to relationships, doing to relationship with God, doing to relationship even with yourself. You know, when you lie or when you sin, in fact, adultery says you're sinning against your own body. But if when you're lying, you're, you're, you're sinning against your own conscience. You're not going to even believe yourself. 
you know, that you can, you're not going to even trust yourself if you're caught up into bearing false witness or lying. But godly sorrow causes you to think about, oh man, I've harmed my relationship with God. I've harmed my relationship with my parents. I've harmed my relationship with my church brothers and sisters. I've harmed my relationship even with the brand new spirit that God has given me because our brand new spirit has, has no sin and cannot, and cannot sin. But godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Because as long as you commit in your cycle of sin, in your cycle of committing sin, asking God to forgive and renounce and reject and, and then going right back to it, you're in a, you're in a cycle that's not going to lead to salvation in that area of your life. And some people don't even have a, have a godly sorrow when it comes to eternal life. Some people, they want God, you know, they, they want his ways, but they don't have a godly sorrow. They're only thinking about things about their losing, especially when we get into the prosperity gospels that God has all these things for you. People much more want to follow God for what they can get rather than what God wants for them. So when they don't get it, they get upset and then they continue in sin because they don't have, they never really had a godly, godly sorrow on seeing how their lives represent, you know, did to God in the first place. So if we have a godless sorrow, that means we're going to have an eagerness to make things right. We're going to have an eagerness to change the way we do things. If we have a, a, a sin in our life that keeps tripping us up, then we're going to have an eagerness to get rid of that, that stumbling block. We're going to do whatever we have to do so we don't continue in that place. Not on our own strength, not on our own flesh, but having trust and faith in God that we can do what we need to do no matter what it is. So we want to have a godly sorrow. So let's hop and skip and jump down to chapter 8. And well, chapter 8 is the money chapter. It goes on, chapter 9 is also uh, the money chapter. It's two chapters that a lot of Christians do not like because they don't like to think that God, you know, has anything to do with money. You know, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but they forget the part that says render God what is God's and so forth. So let's just hop, skip, and jump right into this, okay? Let's go on to uh, verse 5. and says, They did not do as, as, as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Just one second here. Okay. They gave them, themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we need to give ourselves to God. Many times people don't give an offering because they really never give themselves to God. They're just thinking they're being taken by men. And there are a lot of uh, phony baloney messages, rather, rather of ignorance or free will. But if we give ourselves first to the Lord, then we're going to want to give to men wherever God tells us to give. Let's hop and skip and jump down to, uh, down to verse, right before verse 8. It says, excel in the grace of giving. So there is a grace in giving. If, you know, we need to receive that grace and go on. Verse 8 says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnest of others. You know, sincerity of your love for God, your sincerity of love for the pastor, sincerity of love for parents, the sincerity of love for God has a lot to do with your, you know, your bank account. It really does. Because wherever our treasure is, our heart is also. And we treasure money because money is the essence of life in this lifetime. You know, our blood is, is life. It talks about life is, you know, Blood and life is in the blood, but in you know in this world the life is money, and whatever money you have is whatever life you can have, and so many times we protect that. Many times that's our treasure, so we're not really to show our sincerity of love for our brothers, for our pastor, for our parents, 
You know, when Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, it says, you're trying to go past, you know, that you have this money, you say, and, and your parents need help, but you won't give it to them because you said it's, it's, it's for God and his kingdom and his ways, and, and Jesus rebuked them. So let's hop, skip, and jump down to verse 10. It says, first, not only to give. Last year, we were the first not only to give, and it talked about finish your work. Sometimes we don't finish your work. We make vows to God in time of desperation, make vows to God in excitement. We're going to do this, but we don't finish it. We need to finish it. Verse 12, it says, for if the willingness is there, the gift is accessible according to what God has not according, or what to what one has not according to what one does not have. God is not asking for us what we don't have. God is not asking for a MasterCard or a Visa for a bank, you know, or a bank loan. He's asking for what we do have. And many times people will give God, you know, based on uh, our credit card and, and use our money for other things. God is not asking us to give what we don't have. And many times we're living a life above our ability, above what God has blessed us with, and so we don't. So we kind of uh, uh, separate ourselves from these scriptures. But but if our willingness is there, then the gift is acceptable. Your pastor may receive your gift, but if it's not given um, uh, willingly, then it's not received by God, and it's kind of a lost cause. So it goes on talking about quality. Our desire is not that others might be. Relieved while you are hard pressed, and that there might be equality at the present time. Your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you what you need. Then there will be equality. You know, we're we're living in a society here in, in the United States of America. A lot's talked about equality, equality between men and and women, equality between you know uh, different races and colors of skin, and then we should have equality. But let's see what the Bible definition of equality is. As it's written, he who has gathered much did not have too much, and who has gathered little did not have too little. So it's about gathering. It's about the work and the effort you put into it. And if you want the same wages, you know, I, I do believe that women and men should get the same wages for the work they do if the work, you know, receives the same, you know, receives the same value. Uh, recently, we had uh, the women's soccer team, I guess, uh, win the win the title. And they're, and they're demanding the same wages as men. And, I, and at one part, you agree with that. If they're doing the same job, they should receive the same pay, except for the fact is that women's soccer is just not promoted like men's soccer, and men's soccer makes a lot more money than women's soccer. So should, so, so should the women get just as much for the men when the men are making more money for, you know, for the organization? And I would say no, because that's the, people are watching men's soccer, and that's what's bringing in the bucks. But if, but if, you know, if, and if you got a male salesman and a, and a, and a, and a female salesman and they're, and they're, and they're both bringing in, you know, doing the work and both bringing in, in the money, then they should get paid the same. And of course there shouldn't be any, any, uh, uh, less pay for whatever color of skin or, or, and so forth. It needs to be a quality, but quality has a lot to do, but are you willing? And we, we live in a society that some people are not willing to work. They're not willing to go to college. They're not willing to continue the education even after college. And they want the same pay as somebody who has put forth the effort, somebody else who has sacrificed to get where they are and they want just to take it from them. So equality is the opportunity. Equality is not you know, everybody get the same. That's socialism and communism and so forth. Equality is given the same opportunity. Well, we've run out of time here, so I just want to say uh, dopebabastories.com. See you soon.